the optimal life. Alan, welcome. Glad we could finally do this. Uh, third time's a charm when it comes to technical difficulties. So uh, I'm glad we can. Um, why are you so optimistic about the next five decades? Well, it really just has to do with demographics in terms of where the growth is going to be. And a lot of folks are negative on demographics. But I think what you have to do is look around the world and see where the growth is going to be. And that pretty well tells you where the economics of the world are going to be. Okay, and where are they going to be? What is where, where, where are we headed? Well, the good news is that there are a large number of third world countries that in the next half century are going to move into second world place to the extent that they have dramatically reduced their fertility rates they are increasing their education levels and they're moving towards a second world place, which puts them in the same league as, say, India is now, uh, to the extent that they really had no web connections until five years ago or so. And now we have well, a couple of million people, a couple billion people who um, are tuned in to the first world countries, see what we're doing and want to be just like us. And they're going to do it. And we're investing in those countries. Uh, China's investing and uh, India to, to a limited degree is investing. And so the whole movement economic movement is moving forward. And when you have a couple of billion people in third world countries, as they become part of the second world, we in the United States have the opportunity to service those countries. And that is um, basically um, why I'm so optimistic, because I see the United States as uh, the teacher, I see them as the leader. I see them as, to some degree, the money source. And that will dramatically enhance the gross national products of those third world countries as they become second world. Okay, let me just stop you here, Alan. What 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 countries specifically, when you talk about these third world that are soon going to be second world, what what name a few that come to mind? Well, third world basically is the entirety of Africa. And they have a couple billion people there. And there are two or three countries in Africa that are moving forward, sort of leading the pack. Nigeria is probably number one. And that's, that's largely because they do have a uh, an enviable source of oil. And uh, China is put a a lot of money into Nigeria, and they have dramatically had a reduction in fertility rate, and they're working on improving their educational system, and they are doing a very good job of it. 
So that's just one. And of course, Africa has close to 50 countries in it. And Africa is really sort of two parts, northern and southern. Southern is still way behind. The northern part, because it is really closest to first world countries, uh, it is moving forward rather rapidly. Okay, but when you look at when you look at uh, Egypt, for example, would you consider Egypt a first world country? Uh, no, it is a second world. Okay, and what makes a second versus a first? Uh, second, it typically means that a substantial part of their population has gone to high school, and they are also producing goods that um, are manufactured with uh, first world good uh, talents. So um, Egypt um, is working very hard on becoming a first world country. And of course, they're in essence, almost attached to Europe, if you will. And they're working with the Europeans to bring them up into a first world status, though it will be several decades before that can happen. But, but who makes that determination, Alan? Who, who, what is the criteria that they need to meet if there is? A, is there a, a hard line rule like, hey, you have to check off X amount of boxes to well, be considered they, first world? Well, the United Nations puts out an index called the HDI, Human Development Index, and it rates countries on five or six different criteria. And when you go through that, you can divide the countries basically into third world, second and first world status. And uh, the problem in the first world countries is that they are not growing. Uh, their population is, if not stable, moving forward very, very slowly. When we look at Europe, Europe um, is really um, on a downward path in terms of population because they're just having a fertility rate. There's a magic number in the world of demographics, and the magic number is two. For every mommy and daddy, you have to have two kids. If you don't have two kids, your economy starts to shrink. And the problem in Europe is that most of the countries in Europe are down on the one and a half to one instead of two. And the same is true in Japan, Korea, Taiwan, uh, they have, they are not reproducing enough people uh, to generate economic growth. So what you have is countries like India, which have more than two kids per household. And as a result of that, their economies are expanding. And they're contributing a lot more to the world GDP 
than they were, say, 20 years ago. Okay, uh, I want to ask you. I want to ask you about that, Alan, because yeah. when you said the third world countries, you, you've mentioned several times a reduction, I believe, in fertility rate. Is that correct? Yes. Now, why, when you're saying a reduction in fertility rate equates to a positive gain towards second world or even first world status, I, I feel like that's conflicting from what you just said about Europe having only one or one and a half children. Help me unpack that. Well, I mean, Europe. They're not, they're not fading away. They're just not growing the way they should. But when you say a reduction in fertility rate in Nigeria, you're saying that there's less children being born in Nigeria. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, they, they it's it's uh, fine to have two kids per household, which is the golden standard. You don't want to have six. Oh, I see. So what you're saying is, is that there there is that that happy medium. One yes. and a half might not be enough, but four or five, six also becomes too much. A absolutely. Because, and, you know, in India, in India, while you're saying that that economy has grown, that place is way overcrowded with people. I mean, when you have that many people, I've been to India and, and the people living on the streets, it's the most incredible thing I've ever seen. in my. It makes New York City look like uh, uh, the suburbs in Oklahoma. <laughs> Yeah, it's yep. scary. It is, but they their fertility rate is going down, and they just very few years ago um, came up with government funds to dramatically increase the quality of their K to twelve school system, and it's working. It is now. Unfortunately, China which obviously has a tremendous work ethic there, has unfortunately been losing population. And over the next 50 years, they're going to lose a couple hundred million population because of the first, world, the first child policy, the one-child policy that was put in in 1980 and continued for 35 years. And they don't have enough households being formed. First of all, they don't have enough labor. They don't have, they have a, a, a very soft housing market because they're not forming enough households. And it's, it, it could take 30 to 50 years to turn that around. But when you look at the numbers, it's pretty clear that they're going to lose a couple hundred million people in the next 50 years. Okay, so how does a real quick on one more thing on the fertility rate and then we'll pivot. But how does a fertility rate, does it reduce intentionally or is this happening from some other outside factors? No, it's it. It's sort of internal. They um, um, they just stop having as many kids. But why? Why are the, is it because they all want to become the second world status, or is there something else to it? No, no, it, it's exactly that. They want to move forward. They want to move forward, they, and they realize that by ha creating villages within their little little village, you know, too many people, it becomes impossible to be able to provide for anyone in order to move forward. 
Yeah, precisely. Hmm. And uh, there are, let's say, in the northern half of, of Africa, we have seen a dramatic reduction in fertility rates. And in the same vein, we've seen increases in education levels and the particular the Chinese have been pouring money into Northern Africa. And as a result of that are creating a lot of jobs, uh, particularly in the, um, uh, uh, the uh, natural resources, be it oil or gold or whatever is there, but those are creating jobs that are paying, not, not paying what we consider good, but for Africa is really pretty good. Mm. And uh, I will say the it's it's sort of interesting and, and and not particularly positive is that America is shipping our used cars to Africa because they can't afford new ones, and we're shipping over fifteen or twenty million cars uh, over every year, and uh, unfortunately that that's not good for the. Uh, the environment, but this is for the first time they have vehicles to move around in rather than being on camels or horseback or what have you. So they're 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 becoming highly more mobile. And uh they are as I've said, not only on the web web, but learning from the web. Mm. And it it's it's really a fairly positive situation. Why, why does China, what's their incentive to pour money into Nigeria? Because they like to control uh, companies, countries with their investments. They they can't control the United States or Canada or Europe, but they can control the, the companies in Africa. And they're pouring a lot of money into it. And... Um, they're not going to get all of it back, but many of them have been highly successful. Uh, the other problem in China, because they're not producing enough kids, is they don't have enough young people to work in their factories. And what is happening now is that China is uh, putting their money into some of these third world countries to allow them to produce goods. Uh, I like to tell my uh, my friends, go into Costco and go to the clothing section of Costco and look at labels. You hardly see China anymore. You see Madagascar, you see Vietnam, uh, and it's uh, really pretty interesting that they're farming out all their manufacturing, which is helping these third world countries move forward. I, uh, Vietnam certainly is the uh, perhaps the best example. Um, I The last time I was there was about 20 years ago, and it was really a third world country. And now today, as I look at it, they are moving quickly into second world status. Mm. And but why, um, why would Alan, why would that be good for the Chinese people? 
Why would that be good to to get rid of all those manufacturing jobs, uh, you know, and, and give them to people in other countries? Well, the answer it, it's it's not good from the standpoint that China isn't putting people to work. They don't have the people to put to work, but at least in shipping out the work to countries like Vietnam, they are creating economic benefits for themselves. They're bringing massive profits back into China from these companies. And doing what with it? Doing what with the profits? Uh, They're running their country. Yeah, but doesn't that uh, I'm trying to understand how the people in China benefit from that this kind of approach or do they not? Are they the ones well, they, that that will ultimately yeah. fall short? No, they they don't specifically benefit, but they they're not in a position to benefit because they can't take the jobs in China because their population isn't there to take those jobs. So, yeah, it would be a lot better if they if the jobs stayed in China, but that's just not happening. Okay, so you've got China investing in third world, maybe second world countries in hopes of getting big returns on investments. Um, but, it, you know, you've got you've got these countries in Africa that you mentioned are becoming motivated to become at least second world, if not eventually first world countries down the road. You mentioned Europe and the countries there kind of where, where the they're not having enough children. So they're you're saying on one hand that they should be looking to produce more while the Nigerians and other folks are trying to produce less. And then you said India is is also they've got they're overcrowded, but they're also coming down a little bit. Um, so you have all these things going on throughout the world in terms of economics and, and, and demographics. How does any of this relate to what we have going on here in the economies of California, Texas, Georgia, Florida, Ohio, et cetera? OK, the answer is that uh, the United States is the primary producer of goods, better quality goods in the world. And we also spend a lot of energy educating the rest of the world. And I mean, literally, um, when you look at uh, my state here in California, um, we have an enormous influx of young folks from China and India who are coming here to get educated and they go back home and help build their economies. And that's a major contribution. Plus, from our standpoint, we have literally millions of people who I will call advisors who are going to these third world and second world countries and helping them learn how to be a first world country. And they're helping them with their manufacturing, with their education systems. And we here in the United States, I, I, I don't mean to uh, <laughs> overstate it, but we really are the educator of the world. And it's really pretty wonderful to see what we're doing and how we are helping these other countries. Again, yes, we are. We're being OK. So we're being nice to other people. But what, what's in it for us? Why, why does that benefit the United States? Oh, well, we're producing 
dollars for us. I mean, we're putting, and we have put millions of people to work helping these other countries. And that generates dollars for the United States. And we're also uh, exporting goods that help them grow our manufactured goods that we send over there in terms of the the mechanics and the electronics and all of the things that we manufacture so well, we can bring those goods over to these third world countries and help them uh, move to second world status. But when you say that uh, we we're responsible for educating, you use an example of Chinese people that come over and we're we're educating them and we're teaching them skills and all that, and then they go back to their own country to to benefit their country and themselves. I, I mean, again, I know China's not necessarily an enemy, but China is also not really our closest of friends either. I mean, they they're they'd love to compete with us. They'd love to see us us fall in many aspects. So why is that good that that somebody in that situation, in that example, would take the skills that they learned here to go back to their economy of China uh, uh, to benefit them and not us? Well, let's not use China because that's an unusual example. But going back to their third world country, uh, we are contributing to the growth of their gross domestic product. And that echoes throughout the world as they do that. So that is very good because they are, they are buying goods now in third world countries. They're buying goods from the second world and the first world. And that makes the whole machine work. It's mm. uh, a very, uh, a very fascinating thing to watch how these uh, once downtrodden countries are moving forward and starting to buy the goods that we do produce in volume. You look at the conflicts that are occurring throughout the world, Alan, whether it's a Hamas terror attack that starts uh, uh, military operations in Gaza and Israel whether it's Russia and Ukraine going at it, the Afghanistan situation over the years. I mean, there's a lot of conflict over there in uh, we'll call the Middle East region and, of course, even parts of uh, Europe, uh, European Union nations. So, uh, yes, from an economic standpoint, some of this stuff you're saying does make sense. But but how are you? When you talk about the next 50 years, uh, are you are you optimistic that conflict will re- resolve, will, will kind of reduce, or is that something that you really don't dip your toe into? You know, I guess the reality is I don't have a, a lot of hope for the Mideast. Um, you don't? You no, know, it's, it's very, very unfortunate. I mean, obviously, Israel is a first-world country, and when you go to Israel— uh, you you pretty much feel that you're in a first world country because their education levels are so high and they pretty much live like we live or they did 
until rather recently. Uh, I was uh, I was there last summer, and uh, it's r- really pretty refreshing to see uh, the uh, the economy of Israel and what they're growing. And you know, they they in essence created the cell phone. When you go when you drive north out of Tel Aviv, you see all these buildings that have the names of, well, call it Microsoft, IBM, they're all there because the education level in Israel is so high. And it's really a tragedy that uh, the countries, most of the countries immediately is surrounded, haven't move forward like they should. Uh, Egypt's doing a little better, but you know, when I went to college, Lebanon was considered the um, oh the uh, let me say the the Euro- the Europe of the of the Middle East. It was um, a very good economy back then, and yet it it fell apart. And it was just a matter of bad leadership. And I look, you know, I obviously Saudi Arabia economically is in great shape forever. Jordan is not in any shape. I don't, I haven't figured out what they do for a living. Um, but uh, within these countries, there are these small groups that hate America, hate Israel. And I don't see how Hamas or Hezbollah or the other ones are, can be dealt with. It's, it's, it's very unfortunate. But it's been going on for a long, long time. Yes, it has. You know, I, you're an economist and you're predicting the world uh, over the next several decades and you're looking at it more from a demographic and uh, a political, maybe a, um, an economic standpoint, excuse me. But, uh, you know, with the conflicts that are out there, too, that always throws a wrinkle in it. So let's pivot back before we get close to finishing up here to uh, uh, back to us, because I really want to hear these last few minutes from you what 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 it looks like for us we've heard about all these other countries we're helping they're they're growing they're getting to a better place but you mentioned several things throughout your book i believe as well you talk about the single family home um becoming a rarity the de- the detached single family home will become a rarity down the road why is that well for, first of all you have to isolate the areas where that is true and it's it's really mostly um, in the uh, the West Coast and in the Northeast. But the vast majority of the country still has the single-family detached home as the base of their housing. And in, in the United States, if you take California out of the equation, 70% of Americans own their own home. And that is... Um, a, a great thing to have because I, not on a, a sad note, but the reality is that the equity in that home eventually moves down 
to the next generation and allows them to buy homes. So most of this nation is absolutely going to have the single family detached home. Um, California, for the last 50 years, has never had over 55% ownership of homes. And the homes are just too expensive out here. On the other hand, in the book, I deal with North and South Carolina and Georgia and Florida, and they're in terrific shape from a housing standpoint. And uh, but not only on sale, but in rental as well. Uh, very rationally priced product, if you will, on the market, which is why uh, I am so very positive about North, South Carolina, Georgia, and, and Florida. I, when you see the manufacturing that's coming overseas to the states, particularly of South Carolina and North Carolina and Georgia, it's somewhat amazing uh, to see uh, these states take major giant steps forward in terms of providing their population good paying jobs and retirement plans. And they're really uh, never had that before. And it's really a function of the, the last 10 or 15 years. So you, you couldn't uh, have been happy, Alan, with the way California handled COVID and shut people down. I, I don't think that you were thrilled about that, were you? No, California, it, 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 it's it's a head scratching state because it it has this enormous amount of brain power and is pretty much the United States leader in um in, in manu I say man you don't quite manufacture software but in, when you when you look at like the Silicon Valley and you look at Seattle with Amazon uh, you begin to see this enormous amount of people who are earning six figures and even earning six figures they're having a tough time affording a house because our home prices here are absurd, and they're absurd because the governmental bodies in these western in the West Coast are pretty much dead set against providing affordable housing. They could do it in a heartbeat, but they have opted not to. Here in San Diego County, it's really pretty tough to buy a detached home for under seven or eight hundred thousand dollars. And it's been that way. And of course you you need an income of <laughs> maybe a hundred fifty, two hundred thousand a year uh, to get into a house here. Yeah, just just to get by. Just to get by. Yeah. Uh Give me your top. So if someone's listening to this. They've got they've got, you know, 10 for 20 years. Uh, they're going to be thinking about where, where where's the next 20 years of their life taking them. Maybe they're in their late teens, 20s, 30s, and they're trying to figure out what the future looks like. Give me your top five states that you suggest these people move to to give them the best chance of economic growth and prosperity. Give me your top five here in the United States. Well, n number one has to be Texas. That's uh, an amazing state. And it's it's politics 
are not lovable to me, but nonetheless, they do everything possible to provide industry the the ammunition they need to grow. And whether it's um, automobiles or software, they're doing a great job of it. Okay. Uh, if, if I have a, then there, there's another small group like the North South Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, um, and they're moving very, very fast and are providing jobs. And incidentally, a lot of those jobs are coming from California. Um, go back, oh, 10 years, and Boeing moved an entire plant to South Carolina uh, to produce um, their smaller planes that Boeing does, 10,000 jobs they took from Seattle in one lump. And uh, they're, they're gradually, the, the, the downtrodden states of Ohio and Michigan, which have lost enormous number of jobs, mainly because their union wages made it very difficult for the auto companies to make a profit. And the auto profit, the auto companies have moved a substantial part of their facilities down to the Alabama, uh, South Carolina, North Carolina. And there's going to be a very gradual turnaround in the Midwest that it will stabilize. And they had a, have a, a very good workforce. So it's going to take a long time for them to come back and recover what they've lost, but they will come back. Well, I'm here. I'm here in Ohio, and I know you're talking about the the GM plant that may have shut down. Um, but uh, but yeah, there's a there's a lot of there's there's still a lot of thriving manufacturing here in the Midwest. I mean, there's there's yeah. manufacturing facilities. I we're we're one. Uh, we're busy. We're extremely busy. But we've got we've got manufacturing facilities uh, all over this place here, Alan. That you would be, I think, happy to see the economies here overall, uh, uh, at least coming back, like you said, because you know, the last few years were a little bit bizarre with COVID and then regulations, et cetera. So yeah, yeah, no, it it, it, it will happen because you do have the. Um, a labor force that understands how to manufacture. Mm. And yes, that doesn't happen overnight. So yeah, you're, you're you gradually come back. Yes. And let's finish um, it off. Let's finish it off, Alan, with just overall high level. What, you know, your book, well, we, we, we've linked here your book in the show notes. Uh, uh, the book is the next half century. Um, Prepare for an amazing change in world prosperity. So, Give us your summary and conclusion about where you see not only the world going in the next 50 years, but again, I really want to finish it more importantly with our people here in the United States. Where do you see the United States, too, in the next 50 years? You know, I see it staying on the same path it's on now. And it will continue to be the world leader 
it'll be the finance capital continually of the world. And we really are the orchestra leaders. All the other countries, I won't say exactly look up to us, but close to that. They want to emulate the United States. And there are not many other countries that these folks in the second and third world countries want to emulate. Um, We're just uh, sort of an amazing country. And uh, we ought to be very proud of what we have. And, you know, we'll continue to move forward. And our kids, you know, there's a lot over the last few years, I've been reading a, a number of articles and books that's saying that our kids won't live as well as we do. And that's bull, Nate. Our kids are going to live every bit as well, if not better, than we do, and their kids will as well. I can assure you, my kids and my grandkids will live better than we live. And they will be um, happy campers. They'll be part of a first world country that provides them with all the goods and services and jobs that they need to be a first world citizen. You heard it there, folks. From the master economist himself, Alan Nevin. Hey, listen, I hope that you're here in 50 years to witness all this. I hope so. And I know your kids will be. 